Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. This week I'm looking into efforts by foreign intelligence services and secret police to track down activists and dissidents in the U.S. with the help of state and local police here, no less. More on that in a bit. But first, Jean wants to tell you about her upcoming segment on how satellites are helping keep track of China's massive crackdown on its Uyghur minority. That's right, Jeff. The Winter Olympics are coming up next month in Beijing, and the White House has announced that although U.S. athletes will be there, U.S. diplomats will not. We will not be contributing to the fanfare of the games. U.S. diplomatic or official representation would treat these games as business as usual in the face of the PRC's egregious human rights abuses and atrocities in Xinjiang. And we simply can't do that. Jen Psaki, the White House spokesperson, was referring to Beijing's genocide against the Uyghur people in northwestern China, evidence of China's detention facilities for the Uyghurs, and other signs of repression and destruction can be clearly seen in satellite photos. I'll be talking to Scott Harold of the Rand Corporation about those images and how an intelligence agency is crowdsourcing their analysis. Thanks, Jean. Now, as far as I can remember back, I've been reporting on foreign regimes sending secret agents here to spy on and harass activists who've sought refuge in America. Some foreign services going so far as to kidnap dissidents and take them back to China and other places for arrest and imprisonment. Last summer, the FBI uncovered an Iranian plot to kidnap an Iranian-American journalist in New York, smuggle her by ship to Venezuela and then onward to Tehran. Then only last week, the FBI arrested a dual Egyptian-American citizen in New York, Pierre Jurgis, on charges that he was an unregistered agent tasked with spying on opponents of the regime of Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. An especially intriguing element of that case is that Jurgis, according to the Justice Department indictment, was using contacts in local police, presumably the NYPD, to gather confidential information on Egyptian dissidents here. So I called up Frank Figluzzi, a former head of the FBI's counterintelligence division, who told me that a number of foreign intelligence services have aggressive programs to recruit U.S. state and local police as informants. Frank Figluzzi, welcome to Spy Talk. You and I have both been interested in the issue of foreign agents stalking, spying on, uh, harassing dissidents here, whether it's Chinese, Iranians, and so on. But my interest was piqued this week with the announcement of the arrest of an Egyptian agent in New York who's been charged with spying on dissidents against the regime of uh, al-Sisi. What can you tell me about that? There seems to be some unique aspects to that case. Yeah, Jeff, first, thanks for having me. And also thanks for flipping me this uh, this case, this uh, this arrest, because I had not seen it. And I like you, this is of great interest to me. I spent much of my career in the FBI in the counterintelligence mode 
and the the notion of operatives on U.S. soil, particularly to spy upon and even do violent acts against dissidents from the from the motherland, wherever that is, um, is f- far more prevalent than I think most of our listeners understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, I think typically when we think of the intelligence threat, we always think of China, Russia, North Korea, uh, Iran, Israel. Uh, sometimes we can talk about that later. But, but we seldom put together the notion that authoritarian regimes around the world do everything they can to quash um, activists and protests. And where, where do those activists um, go and have the most traction in places like the United States, where we happen to mm-hmm. still have free speech. Mm-hmm. So it, it it makes sense, right? That they would then send operatives here or recruit operatives here to silence dissidents here and gather whatever intel they can about. Yeah, there was a particularly outrageous case that came out in uh, July, I think it was, about an Iranian plot to kidnap an Iranian-American journalist in New York, smuggle her in a, sh- in a ship to Venezuela, whereupon she would be shipped to Iran, to Iran and obviously imprisoned uh, and end up very badly. But let's get back to this uh, case of the Egyptian agent. One of the fascinating things about that is that according to the indictment, the Egyptian agent uh, had contacts in law enforcement, U.S. law enforcement, which he was going to exploit. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, specifically, th- this is this really raises more questions uh, than than answers, and we I I please be wanting for more because it seems like this case against this Egyptian, who by the way has not been charged. I, I saw some people on social media saying, "Oh yeah, it's a ferret case. It's a foreign agent registration act case." It is not. This guy got tar- charged with Title 18, 951, which is sometimes called espionage light. You may recall Maria Butina, mm-hmm. um, the Russian mm-hmm. agent, was charged with this. So, um, yeah, there's what the, the case seems almost largely built on his efforts to recruit and penetrate N- New York City metropolitan area police departments. Um, get get what they call non-public information from them, pass them, those officers, the names of dissidents that Egyptian President el-Sisi is targeting and almost try to use law enforcement officers as an arm of the Egyptian government to, to, to get information and target Egyptian dissidents. And the fact, people might say, hey, wait, wait a minute, Frank, what's the difference between a FARA charge, which we've heard recently during the Trump administration with people like, you know, Michael everybody work, working working as a foreign agent. And what's the difference between that and this kind of 951 espionage light? Well, it, in my mind, it has to go to the, the degree of direct connection to a foreign government or intelligence service. So Foreign Agent Registration Act it can be used against lobbyists who simply forget to register that, hey, we're working for a, a foreign principal, um, an entity, an organization, an institution that has a foreign basis to it. And usually the US DOJ is all about just getting compliance. Hey, you messed up here. Can you fill out the form properly? You forgot to tell us you're working for a foreign principal. 951, you are an agent of a foreign government, period. Don't go any farther. Um, it's quite serious. And this guy's charged with conspiring to act as a foreign agent without no, of a foreign government without uh, notification and actually acting as such. Um, 
looking at with two charges there, a maximum of 15 years in prison. Mm. I would think that a lot of this harassment goes on before the FBI even gets involved uh, for a number of reasons, that the dissidents don't want to be involved too much with law enforcement, that they're suspicious about U.S. intelligence agencies, including the FBI, and so on, right? Uh, and 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 in some cases, uh, I know of cases I've written about long ago uh, that uh, the FBI didn't take the threats seriously, or and or didn't want to devote the resources to protecting the person. I'm thinking of a, a leader of uh, Uyghur Muslims in the United States who, in Northern Virginia, her car was run off the road. Uh, windows were broken in her home and so on. She was spied on and harassed in many ways. And and uh, she told me for that story that the FBI wasn't taking her threats seriously, nor were local police. So uh, these dissidents are kind of on their own, aren't they? Oh, gosh, yeah, they're they're out on a limb here and it, it gets very difficult. So, you know, a couple of thoughts. First, um, people might say, why, why don't, why do they use what we call cutouts? Why would a foreign government get this guy who's not, not accused of being an actual card carrying credentialed foreign intelligence officer, but rather some form of a of operational asset, a, a cutout, a co-opty? Well, the answer to that is fairly obvious. There's, it allows that foreign government arm's length, plausible deniability. Hey, it wasn't one of us. We, you know, we don't know what you're talking about. Mm. Okay. No, no, number one. Number two, um, it it leads more to their ability to succeed with their mission, because, with your, for example, if you're recruiting law enforcement officers um, and you're coming out of the Egyptian embassy or you're coming out of the Egyptian mission to the United Nations, a, a cop's going to go, uh, well, wait a minute, this you, said, you look like a spy, right? But this guy presumably had a day job. Um, he, he could get sympathies from maybe uh, Egyptian police officers. Who knows? He could lie about why he's looking for information, but it gives them more chance of success, gives the government foreign, uh, foreign government plausible deniability. But the fact that cops are involved here is not something new, Jeff. I can tell you um, throughout my career that police, local and state police officers have been a target of numerous foreign intelligence mm -hmm. services. Why? They have authority. They have access to non-public uh, information. Where is this dissident living? What are his family members' names? Where does he work, right? Um, even perhaps paying police officers off-duty to do surveillance on dissidents. Who have I seen do that? China, uh, Cuba. I've seen, um, um, I've seen Israel do it. <laughs> Um, and I will, I will also tell you there's something that we call police tourism. Police tourism is, is something used strategically by foreign governments to get cops to travel abroad for, for free and the, the, to see under the guise of learn how we do law enforcement here. Let's better relationships. Let's have a sister city relationship between this police department in Turkey mm. and your and your police. And we're talking about a high level. So, about chiefs of so just to clarify here. So you're saying that many re foreign regimes, repressive regimes, or even not so repressive, depending on your point of view, 
like yep. Israel, uh, yep. they have conferences, law enforcement conferences. They invite American police, state, local, uh, maybe even some federal police to come and talk at their conference and so on. And this is actually a covert recruitment effort to establish, to assess these local police and see if they might be recruitable. Uh, or let me so, so let me let me just get it gets it's even more nefarious than that. Okay, you're using the you're 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 using kind of the sterile, polite business term conference. Let me assure you, I'm not talking about conferences. I'm talking about bring the bring your spouse, come for a month, come for a month. We'll tour the entire country. Um, meals and lodging are on us. Um, you're not expected to deliver a, a lecture or anything like that. It is with regard to Turkey, it is absolute tourism designed to kind of get really close to various police chiefs throughout small town America, midtown, major city chiefs. Hmm. Um, you, I can tell you, I've, I, I, I've, I've, I can no longer count the number of chiefs of police or assistant chiefs in this country I've run into who tell me they've been to Turkey and it's a beautiful place. Hmm. And was this a problem in your tenure as a counterintelligence director at the FBI? And what did you do about it? Yeah. So the, the, the short answer is yes. The second question you asked um, was what to do about it. That's the tougher one. Um, is there any law against uh, uh, cops going for on vacation for three weeks, four weeks uh, abroad? No. Um, do they fully understand what's happening? No. But so part of what we did about it was education. We would, you know, it, but, you know, you can't you can't educate on what you don't know is happening. So if we knew it was happening or in some cases it had a chief of police approach us and say, FBI, what, what do you think about mm -hmm. this? Right. And we couldn't we couldn't tell them, don't go. You know, it sounds like a great time. But understand you're being assessed. This is this is a this there's a there's a greater thing happening here. Um, and you will be hit up later. You will rest assured um, there will be some some high level uh, in the case of Turkey uh, officers who will come and visit your town six months, a year, two years from now. And oh, gosh, they'll be taking a course at the local university and they'll take you out to dinner. Mm -hmm. and, and lo and behold, this happens every time. Eventually, this does get to can we see your cases? Can we see how you do this? Um, and it's 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 a fascinating, expensive uh, program for governments to do. Uh, of course, of course, the in this uh, plotting, uh, the Turks and other foreign adversaries would also be looking for uh, targets who are susceptible to blackmail. Uh, they will offer uh, them through intermediaries, unknown intermediaries. Drugs or sex with prostitutes and so on in, in rooms that are bugged or wired for video uh, that they can use to get leverage on these cops. Yeah, so now um, when we took when we move over to China and or uh, Russia, absolutely, um, if they can get you over there and get you compromised and you know and shame on any uh, high level police officer that doesn't understand that there's there's cameras in his hotel room and that there'll be attempts to compromise him um that absolutely will be the case the, and then they will feel beholden and when the fbi discovers that a local or state policeman 
is cooperating with a foreign intelligence service? Does it move in and arrest these cops? I, I, I don't recall a single case of that. No, it, it, it has happened. And within, within the last year or two, maybe, maybe two years, I can recall a case in NYPD with an office, a police officer co- uh, who was co-opted by China and he was arrested. Um, and that, that was public information. Hmm. And, and it does happen. It's very difficult to ferret out. Um, you may know that, and this ties back to the dissident, the use of, of, uh, the, the, of co-optees, cutouts to spy on dissidents here and take action. You want to get information like arrest records, um, good addresses. Um, and that, where does some of that come from? Running, uh, cops can run NCIC, right? The, mm-hmm. they, they can run the National Criminal Information uh, Database. That's right. That's right. And, and where, do some of, where do some of these cases come out of? Well, internal monitoring by the police department and by the FBI, because when you, when you uh, I don't, a lot of people don't know this, when you get pulled over on the side of the road by a local police officer and they run your license plate and name, it's going back to the, the FBI that controls the NCIC database, mm-hmm. which, Last time I looked is in West Virginia. So um, cops can do that, right? And when, when we keep seeing cops off duty or, or a police department monitors usage and says, why, why is this patrol officer you know, running all these Chinese names or Egyptian names? What, what's, that, what's going on with that? Sometimes that's one way we catch it. Others, dissidents will come to the FBI and say, do you know uh, we're being harassed and spied on? And I think there's, I think there's an, an unmarked police car. Um, that follows me around. How does the FBI manage these cases? Does it have a, or at least when you were counterintelligence director, did it have a special unit devoted to uh, these dissident harassment cases? No, um, it it fell within the country desk responsibilities. Uh, So in this case, um, which I see in the charging announcement by DOJ, it was handled by the counterintelligence division. And I'm sure you know, Egypt, Egypt is an outlier. It's not like, you know, the FBI has huge resources that are specifically dedicated to Egyptian mm-hmm. counterintelligence. Mm-hmm. So it was likely handled out of kind of the global unit, right? If it was China, it would be handled under under some one of the Chinese sections. Um, yeah, so no, there's not. A, no, there's not. Um, and I'll tell you, with some of the Middle Eastern countries, there's bleed over, crossover um, with the counterterrorism division, because you don't really know, for example, with the case of Iran, um, is this IRGC? Um, Revolutionary uh, Guard. Yeah. Um, who, who's doing this? Is it a terror? Is it a state-sponsored terror organization? Who Really, who's doing this? And, and you'll see uh, extensive collaboration between the FBI's counterintelligence division and, and the FBI's counterterrorism division when it mm-hmm. comes to Middle East. We know that the FBI devotes considerable resources to Iranian threats to the United States. Um, but your, your emphasis on Turkey is kind of new. Of course, no less than Michael Flynn, former national security advisor to Trump, uh, engaged in conversations with Turkish agents to kidnap a dissident, uh, Fatula Gulen here, and spirit him back to Turkey. Um, and that was only exposed because of a former CIA director being in the room, engaging in these conversations who said, this is uh, a bridge too far, and I'm getting out of here. Yeah, 
the Turk, by, just, just, you know, Flynn is perhaps the most recent example of uh, a t- Turkey attempting to get this guy out of the United States, who I believe last time I looked lives in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. I think. Um, a, a cleric considered a dissident. Um, there's a whole series of schools in the United States that uh, align with this uh, dissidents uh, uh, thinking, philosophy, emphasis on education. But for years, Turkey's been lobbying hard, and I'm using the term lobbying very uh, loosely um, at crossing the line sometimes to get this guy back home. And uh, if you want to talk about, you know, th- that they're, they're trying to do quasi-legal or legal extradition. Let's go look at China. China, there have been extensive reports of China throughout the world, in Australia, in in the United States, actually conducting renditions of their dissidents. I mean, one day the guy's home and the next we know that the the relatives can't find him. And and, um, they are are very reticent, the relatives, to report Mm -hmm. to the FBI that my dissident uncle is missing. Why? Because they could be the next one to go missing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Chinese pressure on dissidents in the U.S. Uh, has been uh, widely reported and is very intense. Uh, we've seen uh, uh, Chinese uh, affiliated, not maybe agents, but, uh, you know, uh, sympathizers to the regime in Beijing uh, posting uh, flyers in neighborhoods uh, with a picture of people they consider dangerous dissonance. Um, uh, Steve Bannon's friend, that billionaire Chinese um, exile here, who's supposedly a dissident, but he's been engaged in a campaign to, to discredit other Chinese living in the United States. So this is a particularly egregious campaign by China. Do you, do you think there's any other, uh, any other regime that uh, can compete with China in terms of uh, you know, harassment here? It's volume, volume, volume um, for China. Lots of people, therefore lots of dissidents, um, lots of intelligence operatives and cutouts um, there's been Australia's experienced real issues with this, and and um, even the allegations that this goes beyond the use of cutouts. Um, you know, China China is a very careful, methodical uh, in, uh, intelligence threat. So they they are loath to expose their actual intelligence officers. They will use the cutouts to spy. Um, almost like a block captain back in Beijing, right? Somebody in that in that Chinese neighborhood in the United States or Australia is reporting on on the neighborhood, right? And and who's who? But at some point, Jeff, when you're actually talking about a rendition, which is a fancy word for kidnapping, um, you've got trained operatives coming in and doing that. Mm. Well, we'll be keeping an eye on this, and hopefully, we won't be back talking about this. Um, hinged on the case of somebody actually being kidnapped here, taken back to Iran or China uh, or other places and uh, being executed. So uh, what, let, let me, do, you know, yes, we should keep an eye on, let's really keep an eye on this Egyptian case. Why? A couple of things jumped out at me. We already, t- out of the charging document, we've already seen the reference to New York Metropolitan Area Police Officers and attempt, attempts, to, at least attempts to, to get next to them. Um, but there's quotes. Whenever you see quotes from the Egyptian intelligence handler to uh, this guy, Gerges, what does that mean? There's a wiretap. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a wiretap. So 
I'm going to be watching carefully next to see if they captured any police officers on that electronic eavesdropping. I don't think this case is over. That's former FBI counterintelligence chief Frank Figluzzi, now a commentator for NBC and MSNBC. Over on my Spy Talk page on Substack, I drilled down further on this issue of foreign spy services recruiting U.S. state and local police. You can check it out over there at spytalk.co. Gene? Pretty amazing that these police wouldn't realize if someone was offering them a junket overseas, all expenses paid, that they wouldn't immediately say, problem, problem, red light, red light, stop, stop, stop. This would seem to be ethics 101. Yeah, they don't. And the international chiefs of police and other organizations don't seem too worried about this because there are constant police junkets to Egypt and Turkey, places where I don't think that U.S. police should be getting police advice in the first place. Anyway, I drilled down on this further with Bill Evanina, former head of national counterintelligence over at Spy Talk. Check it out. Remember, subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack and follow us on Twitter. I'm at Gene Meserve. Jeff, you're at Spy Talker. Stay with us. We'll be back in a minute with an interview about the Uyghurs and the Olympics. The U.S. and a handful of other nations will not be sending diplomatic officials to the Beijing Olympics next month to protest Beijing's genocide against the Uyghurs. The Uyghurs live in the northwestern area of China. They are Muslims. They don't look like Han Chinese. They speak a different language. The Chinese government maintains the Uyghurs pose a threat of terrorism, separatism, and religious extremism and it has been brutal in trying to stamp out their culture. As part of an effort called the Terrorline Project, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency made government satellite imagery of Uyghur areas of China accessible to analysts in the nonprofit sector to see what they could discern. A lot, as it turns out. Scott Harold is a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation and associate director of the RAND Center for Asia-Pacific Policy. RAND has conducted a number of research uh, lines of analysis looking at things like using nighttime satellite imagery to capture uh, the volume of light in certain areas in Xinjiang where previously no facilities existed to try to track the construction of these concentration camps, what China calls uh, labor training centers, uh, and to try to track uh, the, con- the destruction of traditional Uyghur cemeteries and to track the uh, building of facilities for children who have been separated from their parents in an attempt to cinify uh, them or because both of their parents have been uh, detained. Um, and so Rand has used this overhead imagery analysis to assess what are the size and scale of these facilities? Do they still exist even when the Chinese government has claimed they do not, what kind of volume of people might be held in some of these facilities, and do those figures match up with some of the reports from other public sources where we know that there have been claims of a million, a million five, even as many as two and a half million people who might have gone through these. If that's the case, we have to find large numbers of facilities, and RAND has found, if I remember correctly, about 55 facilities, each of which could house very large numbers of persons, in part assessed by the number of 
car spaces for facility guards and others who might work in those facilities to come to work every day, in part by assessing the size, height, scale uh, of these facilities and, and assessing how many people might be in them. So how many people do you think might be detained? Is the one million number the right number? So I think what one thing that uh, I would say is that it's very difficult to tell because we're looking at a process that has extended over several years now. And so the various numbers that are out there, ranging from one million to as high as two and a half, don't necessarily reflect one or two and a half million at any given point in time. I think the two and a half million is the largest figure that I've seen. I think it reflects an assessment that this is the number of people who have passed through those facilities. The Chinese do talk about these, again, as kind of labor and training uh, programs. They talk about people having graduated from these programs. Um, it is the case that some number of people have left these programs. However, that's in part because China has gotten such a bad reputation from these programs that it then wants to move them to less visible facilities or at-home encampment or, or uh, arrest, essentially. Do these look like training facilities or do they look like prisons? No, I think we've seen, we've seen clear evidence uh, through the visuals that this looks like, it, it, in terms of how quickly they were constructed, in terms of the kinds of uh, training that have been talked about in the press, we're not seeing anything that looks like it's a job training program. And in fact, there's a substantial line of reporting, for example, from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and other entities, Human Rights Watch, uh, Amnesty International, that show that there has been substantial sale or transfer and trading in human beings that are coming out of these programs. In other words, private sector companies in Xinjiang that can take Uyghur labor for free, which in, I think, most people's ordinary parlance means slave labor. Um, and so that's a real problem that China faces with this, is that it is accused not only credibly accused of genocide, but also accused credibly of engaging in slave labor or forced or compulsory labor for this Uyghur population. Are you seeing other signs that these people are being imprisoned, barbed wire, for instance? Yeah, one thing I, I think you would say, uh, Jeannie, any program uh, that is a uh, labor training program that was not compulsory, you would see these people come in the morning and go home in the evening, go back to their families. However, we have escapee reports that detail that this is not something you can choose to refuse or say, you know, thanks, but no thanks. Um, we do not see any visual evidence from the satellite imagery that people are going home at the end of the day or going home in the numbers that would suggest that the people who are interned there are going home. Only the kind of camp guards or the people who work in these facilities tend to go home. Um, and of course, there are small numbers of releases, but nothing like the inflow or outflow that you or I who live in D.C. You know what the city's like at the end of the day. It empties out. You know what it's like in the morning. There's a rush hour. We don't see any evidence of that. With these facilities. Do you see any signs that some of these are being shut down? So the Chinese government, uh, when these were first built up, denied their existence entirely. Then evidence that was undeniable, including visual evidence, came out that these existed, at which point Beijing's story changed, that these were, in fact, labor and training or de-radicalization facilities. Um, what we then heard from China was, well, we've now shut many of these down. In fact, one of the RAND studies available publicly on, at tearline.mil examined this question with particular reference to some of the facilities that Beijing said had been shuttered. And we found that the lights are still on 
people are still coming to these facilities. It suggests, although you would want additional corroborating evidence, of course, would make the case even stronger, but it strongly suggests that these facilities have not been shuttered and that Beijing's claims are not truthful. You also say that the analysis detected schools. How do you know you're looking at schools? So again, a lot of this, my colleagues who are trained imagery analysts, uh, you know, there's a, there are, they have many, many tools uh, that, that ordinary persons who don't do this for a living, and many of them come from the imagery analysis uh, profession, uh, have, including measuring the height of shadows, the length of shadows. In the case of the schools, the study looked in particular at the common features of a elementary school or playground facility or kindergarten, including a merry-go-round, including uh, kind of plastic or plasticized uh, ground structures that children can climb on. Uh, and these were common across numerous of the facilities. You could see very clearly from the overhead analysis, uh, some of the uh, features or physical uh, buildup. And these are common. One of the other things that a lot of research and analysis on what China is doing in Xinjiang has found is that the Chinese government, like all governments nowadays, puts out calls for proposals or requests for proposals uh, on the internet. Uh, they are soliciting their own private sector to do construction work. And some of these construction work contracts say, well, we need a facility uh, that is capable of housing X numbers of young people. We're going to need a merry-go-round. We're going to need a climbing structure XYZ. And then lo and behold, we can find eight, 12 months later, facilities that match those contractual or contracted uh, descriptions. So I think it's it's quite clear there are facilities here for housing the children who have been separated from their parents. And I presume their function would be akin to that of the American or Canadian Indian residential schools, that this is an attempt to stamp out the culture. I think the claim that the Uyghurs who have escaped from these facilities have made and the evidence that corroborates that, uh, both from uh, reports from the United Nations, reports from diplomats who've been permitted to join uh, travel groups going to Xinjiang, from journalists who've managed to get in, is that uh, the Chinese claim, which is that this is about de-radicalization, about breaking, uh, breaking the roots and breaking the limbs of Uyghur culture, or at least of the radicalized Uyghur culture, which frankly means anything from um, growing facial hair if you're a man, or covering your head if you're a woman, practices that by no means indicate radicalization, uh, or speaking Uyghur and not speaking Chinese, that that is the kind of uh, de-radicalization going on here. And I think from most people's perspective, yes, that would equate to trying to stamp out Uyghur culture and trying to inculcate an identity uh, that is essentially premised on the notion, the normative notions of being an ethnically Han Chinese citizen from the kind of Yellow River Valley at portion of China, as opposed to this far-flung area in Central Asia that the Uyghurs call home. You mentioned that the analysts also saw destruction of cemeteries. Why would that be going on? Well, so um, the part of what has happened in Xinjiang historically, um, this is a little bit separate from the, from the cemeteries, but historically, um, one of the things China has sought to do in, in Xinjiang is to embed more and more ethnically Chinese people there, and to build up cities that look like the kinds of cities that ethnically Chinese people across the rest of China uh, have, are, are used to. Um, and so that requires land, of course, and building and construction. 
uh, and that makes land valuable. Now, the Uyghurs had historically a number of cemeteries, and some of those cemeteries were of revered Uyghurs who had contributed things to Uyghur culture. Uh, and so China's decision to uh, essentially bulldoze those, as well as bulldoze a, a large number of the uh, minarets and mosques that were uh, important within Uyghur religious practice, uh, have been another part of breaking Uyghurs' sense that this land is something they have a historic tie to. Uh, and of course, if you say, well, you know, if you have a historic tie to this land, where are your, where are your ancestors? Where are they buried? And if the answer is under that parking lot over there or beneath that building, or I don't know because I went into this concentration camp and when I came out, nothing was recognizable because you'd completely redeveloped the area of the old town where our family had lived, it helps to change the narrative quite substantially and to reduce the connection that indigenous Uyghur peoples and other, and again, let me say, and other ethnic Uyghur, or I'm sorry, ethnic Turkic peoples and Muslims feel to the land that they have historically inhabited. And meanwhile, China has engaged in a massive surveillance program involving the Uyghurs, correct? Yeah, so this is another one of the areas where uh, kind of open source uh, scanning of the Chinese language internet to find contracts for surveillance uh, and crowd control technology has really revealed a lot. Um, the, it is essentially impossible to travel in Xinjiang now without being observed and, and frankly interacting with multiple sensor devices or physical you know, persons who are going to interrogate you and ask you, What's your purpose and where are you going? So China has built uh, what is widely described as kind of one of the most pervasive surveillance networks in the world in Xinjiang, everything from retinal scans and, and pervasive uh, uh, sensors and, and cameras um, to the use of drones, to the use of uh, cell phone tracking, uh, to the use of physical obstacles to pre prevent you from moving freely and impede that until a point where you can be interrogated by uh, a local ethnically Han police officer or member of the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps or any of the other uh, essentially colonial institutions that comprise the Chinese state in Xinjiang. Are U.S. technologies being used for the surveillance? So this has been an issue uh, that many uh, in the U.S. have been quite concerned about. I, To the best of my recollection, I have heard that that is the case. I don't remember whether there are any specific companies that have been alleged to be part of it. However, I think the reverse has been equally concerning, if not more concerning, and that is that large numbers of Chinese companies, iFlyTech, Huawei, Tencent, and others uh, that are integral to China's surveillance efforts in Xinjiang have also been free to market their services and products in the United States, essentially profiting from the United States and their activities here and at the, same, at the very same time that they are being used to commit genocide in Xinjiang. Now, the Biden administration has tried to limit that, correct? Yes. The, in fact, I think the Trump administration and the Biden administration both deserve some credit in terms of identifying what has happened in Xinjiang and trying to prevent uh, a number of uh, Chinese firms that are operating in Xinjiang from also operating in the United States. There have been a number of those firms that have been listed either on the entity list maintained by the Department of Commerce or on a list maintained by the Department of Defense. Um, but there is also a growing effort to try to block uh, the export of goods made with either forced labor or from Uyghurs, uh, even body parts. I mean, there's 
there was a rather gruesome case uh, when Secretary Pompeo noted that uh, there was a large number of items made from human hair uh, that had been exported. I think wigs. Uh, I I could you know use a little extra hair myself, but I certainly would not want to take it if it was forcibly taken from the person to whom it originally belonged. Uh, and I think the U.S. under the last administration uh, blocked and seized uh, imported hair products from Xinjiang. There is a certainly a large uh, number of uh, exports from Xinjiang of cotton products. One of the real challenging ones, Jeannie, is that um, the United States and the rest of the world import certain components for solar panels that are made in Xinjiang, very water intensive, very labor intensive. Um, this could be some of the technology that potentially helps reduce uh, global carbon emissions. However, at the same time, Beijing has co-located it in Xinjiang uh, and, and that creates real problems for saying, okay, now we're going to ban all export or import of anything from Xinjiang. Um, so I think there's a lot of questions here. How do you disentangle this? Uh, and of course, there are US firms that would like to sell into the Xinjiang market for ordinary goods, one that caught attention. Well, Tesla week, just opened a showroom. Elon Musk, exactly, and, and Tesla. Uh, looking to have uh, facilities to market in Xinjiang. And the question is, you know, are we saying in essence uh, that this should not happen anywhere in Xinjiang? Frankly, um, the decision to commit genocide does not reside with even the party secretary of Xinjiang. Xi Jinping, the Communist Party's general secretary, is ultimately responsible for all the decisions to commit genocide in Xinjiang. So the question is really, know, the United States should be looking at what sorts of economic relations and ties does it want to have with a regime that's committing genocide. Of course, part of that has to do with exactly where the genocide is occurring. Is there forced labor there? Is that market one that we want to be selling into? But at the broader level, too, with the rest of China, since this is a, a decision ultimately taken by the top levels of the CCP. And now the administration has said we're not sending diplomats to the Olympics. We've been joined by a handful of other nations. Is that going to have any impact at all? Is that going to change behavior? I think it's unlikely to lead the Chinese Communist Party to change its behavior in Xinjiang. And again, uh, Xi Jinping, who authorized the commission of genocide in Xinjiang, um, has essentially made a decision that this is something he is willing to absorb very substantial costs for. Um, and really, it's quite an astonishingly bad decision on, on his part. You know, there we talked about a very small number of instances where there was violence used uh, by Uyghurs. You know, there was an allegation of an attempted bombing on a plane using a can of Coke with some petrol, with some petrol in it. Uh, there was an incident in Beijing where there, where a jeep drove off and onto the sidewalk, may have injured some people and and blew up and caught on fire, but no one else was killed. Um, and then there was a very tragic incident where a number of Uyghurs who appear to have been trying to escape out of the country felt cornered, felt hopeless, and took swords and attacked the Kunming railway station, after which this crackdown was really launched. So all of that is to say, yes, there may have been instances where violence was used by some Uyghurs. There's certainly been instances where violence was used by some Han against Uyghurs. The solution does not mean let's wipe out the Uyghur people, destroy their culture, and imprison effectively most of the adult population. Um, the challenge for the United States now is to say, on at what level do we stand up for what values we represent? Are there costs for committing genocide or not? Is it appropriate for the United States to send diplomats as if nothing is happening when our government has said, no, genocide is occurring? 
Um, I think it's entirely, personally speaking, from my own personal perspective, I think it's entirely appropriate for the United States not to send its officials uh, when China is perpetrating genocide. I think there are many people, and I would say I myself would count myself amongst them, that would feel that even stronger measures uh, may be warranted. It's challenging. Like what? However, to, like what would you? Well, so it's it's quite challenging to to find uh, a, a position that the majority of the world's countries would stand behind. For many of the world's countries, they themselves do not have, and the United States itself does not have a perfect human rights record. Um, this is not about perfection. Uh, this is about arguing against the commission of genocide, which is a specifically designated crime, as are crimes against humanity. Um, much of the West uh, and many of the countries linked with the United States have been the most vocal about speaking out. Um, many of the countries in the Muslim world have been much quieter, and many of the countries in the developing world have been quieter. Partly that's because in the Muslim world, unfortunately, the human rights situation is often not particularly good. Um, and in some of the countries in the Muslim world that do have much better human rights records, um, they have a greater degree of economic dependence on China. Um, and in fact, that economic dependence argument, I think, is something that constrains most countries, which are worried about speaking out on China, uh, on China's human rights. Uh, and so the real question is, is there anything that could force China to abandon this? I think not. Is there anything that can stigmatize it and, cost, and impose costs on China? There, I would say the answer is yes. And our duty to our fellow human beings in Xinjiang is to speak up and give them voice and not, I think, let them, and to let them know that they're not forgotten. The imagery that you're working from, this is unclassified, I presume? This is unclassified. But government produced. But government produced, that's correct. The, the analysis that NGIC, or the description that the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency gives, is an analogy to the CIA World Factbook, which many uh, college and graduate students will be familiar with, hopefully many Americans and even people around the world will be familiar with, which is just kind of a provision of open source data. Here, NGIC is looking to take this one step further and say, in partnership with certain organizations, men, many of them are universities, other think tanks, uh, the NGIC will provide the raw imagery. It will not guide the analytic findings. It will not do the quality assurance, uh, but it will ensure that the public has access to what is, after all, uh, data produced by the investments of U.S. taxpayers' revenues in creating this imagery analysis capability, um, and then use that to help provide additional outreach and contact and fertile sharing between the community of analysts who exist outside of the government and those inside the government. So the idea is kind of a back and forth that will enrich both communities. So I do think it's innovative. Um, but again, I do think it's also of a piece with a broader trend uh, of recognizing that the most effective and interesting findings we're going to get out of our government may come in part from augmenting the government uh, with the private sector and with, and with the public, having an ability to leverage some components, open source, of course, uh, to provide additional analysis. That was Scott Harold, senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation and associate director of the RAND Center for Asia-Pacific Policy. I learned a lot from that uh, interview, uh, Gene. And one of the things that really jumped out at me is how the satellites have tracked one facet of Beijing's 
drive to erase Uyghur history, and that is the plowing under of cemeteries, Uyghur cemeteries. If you erase the past, uh, the new generation grows up not knowing its roots, where it came from, no evidence, no proof. That was fascinating. And the Terraline project of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency is looking at other areas and issues as well. Climate change, North Korea, China's Belt and Road Initiative, uh, trying to crowdsource information, get different perspectives and strengthen their analysis. It's an interesting project. Indeed. Well, that's another edition of the Spy Talk podcast. Great to have you tuning in. I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. Have a great weekend. Stay healthy and remember to subscribe to the podcast and also subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. Take care. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.